Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. You're about to hear one of the most enjoyable, intellectually revealing, self-reflecting and honest conversations I had with one of my best friends. If you have the time, I suggest that you watch this podcast. It's available on Rask's YouTube channel as a full video. Ryan Newman is Portfolio Manager of Motley Fool Pro, a members-only investment service run by the Motley Fool Australia. In the first part of this podcast, Ryan and I do what most close friends would do when you chuck a camera and a microphone in front of their face for the first time. We engage in a bit of light-hearted chit-chat. Even if you're not one for a bit of banter and back and forth, I implore you to keep listening because this podcast episode is incredibly insightful. I get to chat to Ryan each day, but this conversation gave me an entire new understanding 
of how to develop as an analyst, an investor, and as a person. Ryan shares priceless wisdom from his favorite Australian investors, including Joe Mager, Matt Joss, and Anirban Mahatney, three investors Ryan was lucky enough to count as colleagues and be mentored by. There are also three people who have appeared on this podcast, most of them more than once. I also asked Ryan questions like, what have been your biggest winners and what did you learn from them? What money advice are you giving to your children? There is something for everyone in this extra special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. I know you'll enjoy it. Welcome back to some easy listening on the Australian Investors Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, my groomsman, Ryan Newman, who is portfolio manager at the Motley Fool Pro here in Australia. Mate, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's heaps of fun. So we're going to try and keep it PG for listeners today. And for viewers, if you want to watch this, you can jump on the Rask Australia YouTube channel um, where you'll see a lovely photo or video of Ryan and myself. I'm much more casual than you today, Ryan. You've got a nice analyst. Yeah, I've, come, analyst I've come prepared in my Motley Fool my, 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 my getup. Yeah, yeah, you have. I, I feel a lot more dressed up than you. I feel like you could have gone to a bit more effort there. Yeah, I was just explaining that I bought this Levi's top and then within five minutes, literally, I wore it home from the Eastland Shopping Center and I spilt something on it and now it's stained for life. It's the most expensive shirt I bought in 18 months. Anyway, <laughs> we digress. So today we're going to talk about your investing journey, some of the things that you've learned over the years. Um, and we're going to talk about like who's influenced you, the types of companies you like to invest in, why you invest in those types of companies. And you've even got some examples for us. Um, but to kick things off, people who don't know you, may not know, well, they wouldn't know that you are a St. Kilda tragic in the AFL. Um, I'm surrounded by St. Kilda fans, um, you being one of them. And so I thought I'd just throw, just to break the ice with you, mate, just some um, just some easy questions straight off the bat. You can play them. So I guess, what are your thoughts on a drawn grand final and, and what's the best <laughs> solution to that? I thought you were meant to, I thought you were meant to ease into these sort of hard questions. Uh, look, tragic is definitely the right word. It's uh, it's been a tough journey. It's been a tough twenty nine years of of existence for myself. Um, I th- I think the the drawn grand final that was probably the best and the worst game I've ever seen. It mm. was it was heart stopping. It, it was an amazing it was an amazing game, but at the same time just heartbreaking. You know, to get so close and yet so far. Uh, there was obviously that moment as well with Brendan Goddard taking that, you know, spe- specky right. I think it was the last quarter or maybe the third quarter, and just thinking, you know, this is it. This th- th- we've got this, mm. and then just to have it taken from our grasp. That was a uh, pure devastation. That's that's all I can say. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, St Kilda fans. I, my experience with them is that they're often very good people. Um, you know, maybe with the exception of one or two who show a name nameless. Um, I, I, I've got to admit, like you guys, you know, you'll have your time in the sun. Um, hopefully next time you won't have two grand finals in one season. Um, <laughs> but the other question that I have is for those who are um, St Kilda fans or AFL fans, I've just got to ask the question, is Steel better than Lenny Hayes? That's a good question. Uh, he, he's an amazing player. I, I don't. He's sort of a, a pretty similar player as well. Very, very tackle oriented, very defensive, but also... Uh, you know, put, putting in that offensive that offensive work too. Um, he, he's an amazing player. And I think as well with the struggles that we've had this year, uh, and we're starting to look good, by the way. We've had some pretty good weeks against mm. uh, Richmond and, and Brisbane in particular. But uh, he's been he's been leading leading from the front all the way through. Um, and yeah, I, I'm 
more than happy to have him replace Lenny. Len- Lenny's yeah. up at uh, Greater West Sydney now. Greater West Sydney now, anyway. So uh, we, nice. we do yeah. need a replacement on the ground. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so mm. I like it. Yeah, um, and we'll watch on. We're recording this in early to mid July. Um, we'll see if you guys make the finals. I hope for your sake, mate, and for those around Thank me you. that that you do. Um, but let's get on with the actual uh, interesting stuff rather than St Kilda. No offense, I'm a Hawks Hawks fan. Um, so the I, I, what I want to do is talk to you about your journey um, to investing because um, you mentioned there that you're actually quite young to be a portfolio manager at, at 29. Um, so I guess where did it all start for you? Can, can you relive that experience for, for listeners? Yeah, it's interesting to, to, to call it my journey. Um, in a way, I, I almost think of it as our journey um, mm-hmm. for, for those who don't know. Um, Owen and I are very good friends. We we went to school together. Um, so we grew up in southeast Melbourne. Uh, actually, would you call where you grew up southeast Melbourne? Dan yeah. Yongs? Yeah, Eastern. East, East Eastern. Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm from Southeast. Uh, Owen's from the Hills. We both grew up uh, grew up together. We we both met at St. Joseph's College in Ferntree Gully. Um, to be honest, I I don't know if you know this. I didn't really take to you early in the early <laughs> days. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say this on here, but I, I, to be honest, I thought you were a bit of a prick. <laughs> but uh, you may as well say it here want... with thousands of people listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, but uh, look, I, re- I really warmed to you, uh, particularly in the later years when I guess we started to develop some pretty similar interests. Um, uh, I know we were both really into our fitness and gym. Um, I-, I think, to be honest, probably what brought us together, I think you were probably looking for some tips and some uh, some pointers about how to improve your <laughs> technique and form. So I was um, ha- happy to give that to you, mate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that was that was probably really the starting point, and also sitting through specialist math that was a uh, that was an interesting interesting tale. Um, yeah. I, I think you were probably better at that than I was. Uh, but yeah, that was really I guess the start of our journey, and we we really kicked it on from there. Um, after school, I think I, I I guess after school it is a difficult period for a lot of people. Um, I think you you probably felt that as well. I know you sort of had. Uh, trouble finding your direction. You, um, you you ended up living down in Anglesey for quite a while and studying in Geelong. Uh, I can't even remember what you were studying down there. To be engineering, honest, engineering, engineering. There you go. Yeah. Um, so it's it's amazing that you know we're, we've both come to this point, and I think we're, we've we've sort of shared some some experiences along the way. I, I remember, for instance, you got me one of my first jobs, uh, Foodworks in Upway. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yep, yep. You were instantly the manager of the store. Must have put in a good word for you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Uh, and I, to be honest, I didn't last long. Re- retail was not for me. Um, I, I remember Ken was our manager, and uh, amongst his final words to me were when, when I handed in my resignation. Wow, already? <laughs> um, I, I knew at that point that I wasn't going to be uh, one of the the employees to remember. But um, yeah, for. From from there, I, I think it was difficult to know what direction to take. And I, I started off in commerce. Um, I really liked the idea of, of maths. Uh, actually, all through school, I was actually really good at maths. Um, specialist maths uh, didn't didn't grab me. I, I wasn't very good at that. And that's the more advanced sort of side of things. Uh, but maths, I was, I was always very interested in that. Uh, my dad's an accountant as well. And I guess... Uh, Going down that commerce and, and accounting sort of path just seemed to make sense to me. But 
when I when I left school and got into got into university, it just really didn't agree with me. I, I think I needed that break, that mental break to just sort of, you know, take take it in and, and just live life for a bit. Um, I was actually working at the at a local hospital or a private hospital at that time as well, um, and was interested in you know potentially going down the, the medicine path. I was sort of going going through some health courses to to get to that. Realized I couldn't stand the science element of it, um, and it actually ended back up in in accounting. Um, from memory, you and I actually sort of went down that path at a, a fairly similar time. I know I actually joined you at an RG one four six course, and that's a regulatory sort of course. So I'm not mm. really sure why we ended up in that. And may, actually, may, I'm going to throw this back to you. Why why did we end up in that? Because I, think, I actually sort of followed your lead on that one. I think at the time, and this is a uh, maybe a blight on the uh, financial planning industry, is at the time you could you could go into a major city. And pretty much get RG one four six qualified. So that's regulatory guide one four six, and what that means is that then you could give financial advice. And <laughs> we recognise that you could effectively get uh, become effectively a financial planner in like two weeks. Uh, <laughs> which now that I say it is very scary um, to think that you know um, early twenties um, young folks without any qualifications or experience could have had that kind of title. Um, but yeah, I think we did that, but I, I don't know if that came first. I think what may have came first is actually reading, um, or you reading the Motley Fool, finding out about the free newsletter that they offered at the time. Yeah, maybe, maybe that did come first. And, uh, I, the Motley Fool has been around in Australia for, I, I think about 10 years now. It might be a, a, a year or two either side of that. Um, I did come across it in the very early days and, mm. um, investing was always something that interested me. I, I remember probably 15 or so years ago, I, I was sitting at a family barbecue and talking to my uncle about uh, the prospect of potentially investing in JB Hi-Fi shares at the time. And I didn't, but I remember they were trading, I think it was around $2 at the time. And uh, JB Hi-Fi was my favorite store to go into. I'd you know, regularly go in there and buy buy a DVD or you know buy my, my, my hardware or whatever I needed at the time. Um, so it was something that sort of resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, hey, I, I, I really like the idea of owning some shares in this. Um, I didn't, but I guess that sort of sparked the the, the interest for me. Um, I'm going to digress for a little bit because, and we're, we're sort of going going all over, all over the shop here, but our, I, I said that my journey sort of started off as our journey. Mm. And that that is literally speaking. So I remember the first stock that I bought. <laughs> Here we go. Do you, do you remember the name of the stock that I bought? <laughs> I don't remember the name. Uh, maybe something to do with Indonesia and mining? Uh, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much spot on. It was called Indo Mines. IDO was the ticket code. I, I don't think it's listed anymore. <laughs> oh, no. Now, and for your listeners and my listeners, uh, anyone anyone who, who's uh, got any vested interest in either of us, uh, we, we have both come a long way since <laughs> since this point, rest assured. My my first stock, I literally opened the, new, the the newspaper to the financial section, and Owen was around at my place for, for the day, and I said to him, "All right, mate, I've got five hundred dollars to invest today. What am I going to buy?" And Owen's advice, and th- this was your advice. <laughs> you said, "All right, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to point randomly somewhere on that page, page, and whatever you point to, that's the stock that you're going to buy." <laughs> 
So sure enough, Indo Mines was the first stock that I bought. I actually made a little bit of money on it. I I, I think I made about twenty percent by the time I by the time I, I sold. I was actually a forced seller. I um I I done a, a, a like a um sent in a, a an order to sell it at this price, and it and it I think it it triggered that after maybe two or three months, just by pure chance. You're welcome. So I made a bit of money on it. My my second stock wasn't quite so successful, and this was also a a, a rask. <laughs> a rask, uh, recommendation that company was called hot rock limited and now if i if i recall correctly you were pretty much you know that guy at the barbecue that you know gave us that hot tip you know about about this hot stock so maybe maybe you want to give us a bit of information about how you came across that yeah so it's very scientific so i won't bore you with the details but basically <laughs> hot rock limited was involved in some um, geothermal energy extraction based out of Latin America, I believe. So, I mean, all good things, well within our circle of competence at that stage. You said you didn't like mm. science. Geothermal energy sounds like something that would be right down our alley. And um, yeah, I think I got you involved in that one. Um, too bad I didn't no, charge did. commission because, um, I mean, yeah, who knows where I'd be today. But um, so what was also tragic about this, I mean, I eat my own cooking even back then as I do now, but... Um, <laughs> I, I went pretty hard into Hot Rock Limited. Not only that, but I also um, ended up investing some of my, my mother's money into Hot Rock Limited. Um, and I convinced you to do the same. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was, a, a, I guess, just like a three-time loser um, in every sense of the word. I don't know, but did it actually end up going bust or what happened to that? I have no idea. I, I, I sold within a couple of months, I think. I, the volatility was too much for me at that point. Yeah, well, it was a I roller coaster. Guess, <laughs> you've got to hold on to the great companies, I guess. That's um, right. Yeah, so that was that was a pretty formative experience for you, no doubt. Yeah, look, it's 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 a funny experience and, and one I look back at fondly. But the the truth is, I, I don't regret it. It was it was a good lesson to learn early on as an investor, um, and I think that's a that's a real key. You know, the best time to start investing is ten years ago, but the second best time is now. So I believe that for anyone, anyone can start investing at any time, whether it's today, tomorrow, whenever. Mm. But the best time to do it is when you are young and when, you know, I guess you're investing with money that in the big scheme of things isn't going to make a huge difference in your life. And as I said, you know, into Indo Mines, that was probably a $500 investment at the time. And at the time that is, that, that seems big, you know, it's, it's devastating to lose that, that or you know, to even potentially lose that. But looking back now, it was, you know, it was well worth risking that or making or, or learning that lesson then as opposed to now when, you know, when, when you've got a family to look after or a mortgage or, you know, whether I guess the, the stakes are that much higher. So it's not something that I regret at all. Um, I think though it was probably not too long after that I started really, I guess, trying to find you know, so, some better advice and some better guidance on how to actually, you know, go about my investing. Um, I was looking for some newsletter services at the time. I Maybe I just came across a newsletter service by chance, you know, when I was looking for, for some stock news, for instance. Um, and there were there were a few a few offerings at that time, and I can't remember the, the exact names of them. Um, the, the Motley Fool, though, was one of probably three or four that I sort of shortlisted. I think there was maybe like a free month subscription, you know, sort of a trial period, and mm-hmm. I probably did that for, for each of those three three or four. And 
I was tossing up between these different these different newsletter services, and I think one of the reasons that I landed with the Motley Fool at the time, for one, it was I guess it was it was only just starting in Australia, so it was a pretty new experience. I was starting as an investor; they were starting in Australia, so it you know it sort of felt like I was starting my journey with them at the same time. Mm. It was partly the cost, uh, as I said, as a young investor, uh, money and cash was was a lot to me at that time, um, as it is still now, but even more so at that time. And also the brand and, and the messaging resonated with me. It was, it, it was, it wasn't a really, you know, it, this company wasn't taking itself incredibly seriously like others in the in the industry do, uh, like like yourself obviously do. You know, th- this is this is this is meant to be a, a very serious chat, I'm sure. No doubt. But the 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 messaging and the branding really resonated with me. You know, the, the Motley Fool with a jester cap as its logo. You know, it, it, that that resonated with me, and I think that's really why I joined. Uh, as a as a member to the or to the free site initially, and then uh, I think the the first the first service was Share Advisor, which was which is still going. Um, but at the time, I as I said, it probably only recommended one or two stocks at that time. Um, so I, I remained a member for for a number of years, um, probably one or two years, I guess. And then I, I realized, hey, I actually really enjoy this, and I think this might be a path that I want to go down. Um, you know, I, I, I was studying accounting at that time and thinking, you know, this is something I want to do. Uh, I, I did initially send uh, Bruce Jackson is our general manager, still still is our general manager. His wife was uh, was also working at the company at that time. Her name's Lynette. And I sent the company an email and basically said, look, do you guys have any open opportunities? Um, I'd, I'd be really keen to learn and, and really keen to, to join in. At that time, she said, look, I, I really enjoy your enthusiasm and your, uh, I guess, persistence. Um, at this time, we don't have anything. So, you know, please keep us in mind, maybe come back to us in the future. Um, as I said, I was working at, at, a, at a hospital at the t- uh, around that time, went back uh, from London. I was visiting my brother over there who was just on a, a three-month trip. And uh, when I came back, I guess I struggled a little bit getting back into the work. I wasn't getting the shifts that I needed or wanted. Um, so I messaged again and said, look, do you have any opportunities now? And they said, still still no full-time opportunities, but we do have some freelance opportunities. Would you like to, to explore that? Um, and yeah, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, and that's where I really started, I guess, as a freelance writer for The Motley Fool. I think that was uh, February 2013. So just over eight years ago now. Mm. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize you had to be so persistent. That's pretty cool. Um, I suppose when you want to do something, you got to ask and ask again. That's right. Yeah, it's a good lesson. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's it's kind of interesting um, how that took place, and I guess changed the trajectory of your life, which in turn then changed the trajectory of mine. Because, mm. um, and I think I'm going to um, pay my dues to to Bruce here, um, the Motley Fool at large, but Bruce in particular, who is the general manager of the Motley Fool Australia, um, is often he goes unnoticed. He's kind of like behind the scenes, right? And he's, you know, from the get-go, he's understood what people want. He's built a platform that's incredible uh, and he's provided a place for people like us and others in the Motley Fool team to learn about investing and then share that wisdom with more people, with thousands of people around Australia and indeed the world. And so it's funny, you know, how we trace a path through life Um, because the next step for you it was you started freelancing, right? And then, um, I guess what, like, what were you doing when when you're freelancing for the Molly Fool? What were you doing, and how did that change up until now? Like your role, I guess. 
Yeah. So at the time, uh, as a freelancer, it basically became my job. So I, I was um, basically writing all day and it gave me a really good opportunity to start learning more about investing um, and about businesses, you know, to, to not actually have to go to an office every day to work and then, you know, come home and, and look at business, you know, studies af- afterwards. Just being able to do that during the day and start, you know, really, I guess, seeing how things work and how everything sort of flows together. Um, that was a real eye-opener for me at the time. Mm. Um, I was... <sighs> I want to say I was doing freelance writing for maybe three years. And and at times I was writing, you know, multiple articles a day. Um, and, and, and as I said, that was really valuable for me. What I found though was that I, I guess be, being a writer, but I'll, I'll start by saying this, writing is an amazing skill for anyone. Mm. And I think as an investor in particular, because being able to write, allows you to sort of think ideas through it allows you to get them onto a piece of paper and you know even if even if you you aren't writing properly even if even if it's a really you know you you you're writing for half an hour and you then you realize oh this is terrible even that is a good lesson because you realize hey I don't actually understand this enough to write about it I need to go back and and double click into this and, and understand it better but when you do understand it you know writing it down sort of helps that idea generation sort of flow so writing was incredibly, uh, incredibly valuable for me, and it still is. What I think was an issue for me, though, is that spending so much time writing, I, I, I wasn't getting enough time to read and really digest that information. Mm. And I think, uh, and and I, as I said, I transitioned from uh, from freelance writer to uh, to research or to writer analyst, a re- writer research analyst. I think in probably late 2016 or thereabouts, so after three three and a half years. And what I found with the transition was that being able to read more and actually take that information in to digest it was really helpful. Um, it allowed me to sort of start developing more of a you know second level thinking. You know what, not only what has been said or what is being said, but what do they mean? You know, mm. and and even on top of that, it's not a, it's not only what do they mean; it's also what did they not say. Yeah, you know, it's 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 actually reading into this and and you know starting to think more along the lines of, you know, how is this business being run as opposed to you know how are they saying it's performed. Um, so I think that's a that's a really valuable skin, skill to learn and one that I think is valuable for any investor, uh, but particularly ones that are I guess working in in a, working in the industry like you and I. Mm. Um, I, I think one of the, one of the challenges that I had actually of, uh, of transitioning from, um, from a freelance writer to an analyst, it was probably feeling like I wasn't doing my job. I'd gone from a very hands-on, you know, I'm, I'm constantly writing to now I'm constantly reading. I'm not, uh, there, there's really not that much, you know, tangible output or there, there's nowhere near as much tangible output as I'm doing right now as I was. And in a sense, that, so, that was hard to, I guess, comprehend that mm. I am creating or I'm, I hope I'm creating more value now by doing less work and more thinking. Um, and that's, that, that is something that I, I had to sort of adjust to and, and, uh, and learn probably over, over the course of maybe 12 months that, hey, this, this is what I should be doing. This is what I need to be doing. Mm. Yeah, I... 
I've, I remember the freelancing days and it was like 80% writing, 20% research, right? And then you go into a research role and it's flipped the other way, um, if not mm. more research. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. Like, cause we've shared so many similar experiences, um, to hear you talk about it resonates with me and just to hear you talk about it and explain it is actually, um, it's re- really good to hear because, you know, I often say that writing is such an important skill set for investors because mm. you get your thesis down, you, you can fill in the blanks. Like the, one of the things that I kind of talk about a lot is the, um, the Feynman technique, like you, basically where you you kind of research you explain it to a a child effectively to try and fill in the blanks then you go back and you research and then you try and do it again until you fill in those blanks writing is a great way to do that without a child um i'm sure you'll be doing that Mm. in a few years with with your kids but um yeah i think that's a it's a it's such a useful and valuable skill like all of the good investors are great writers right so warren Mm. buffett charlie munger howard marks the list goes on um Okay. Do you remember, this is a question that one of the RAS team put to me to ask you is, um, do you remember like any books or resources in particular that influenced you in those early days where you thought, you know, oh, maybe you had an aha moment or anything like that? Yeah, I've got probably three, three that resonated quite well with me. The first one's uh, going to be a boring answer. It's probably the answer that a lot of people give one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Um, that one, I, I think, I think in the early days, what, what probably, um, I guess hindered my, hindered my development a little bit was, uh, really thinking about stocks in terms of a business, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's, it's obvious to you and I right now, right. But people that you and I talk to that maybe not so experienced in investing, they, they don't comprehend that and it is really difficult for them to comprehend you know what is a stock what is a share what does it represent and you and i were actually trying to explain this to uh, a, a tradesman recently mm. and you know uh, putting it in terms of you know if, if you were to sell some of your business to someone else then that is sort of like a share you know if you sell fifty thousand uh, dollars if you sell a share for fifty thousand dollars and you keep one for fifty thousand dollars your business is valued at a hundred thousand dollars you own one share, he owes one share. Yep. People don't comprehend that. And, and, and I can understand why, because I sort of came from that point. Hmm. And reading One Up on Wall Street, I think for me was just a good start, a, a good place to start because it, it really did highlight investing in that light. Invest in what you know. Think about the business. Observe the world and, you know, take it in. Um, I, I haven't read one up in one up on Wall Street in uh, in a number of years, so I can't remember uh, any of the the specific case studies. But he does refer to a lot of situations where you know he he has observed, for instance, a, a cafe that might have just opened a, a second franchise, and then another franchise, and then another one, and just being observant like that and taking that in that can be a real good starting point for you, um, mm. and. You know, it's it's not even just it's not even just that. If you're a worker, you know, if you're a worker, you can actually start to think about investing in that light as well. Let's say you're a a young cashier at at Woolworths, right? So you 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 work. That is one of the company's major major expenses. The the employment. What happens if all of a sudden 
the company creates some sort of, or the, the company introduces some sort of new innovation that all of a sudden you notice I'm able to pack these bags twice as fast as I used to be able to, mm. you know, that's an efficiency improvement. That, that's an improvement in efficiency, right? Mm. So maybe that means that Woolworths can hire less staff on any given shift. Maybe that means that their expenses can go down while their revenue stays constant, which would therefore lead to, to higher profits. It's those sort of insights, I think, that can be really valuable, particularly for people who are just starting out. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of different examples of that. You know, uh, if you're if you're uh, working at a cafe as a barista, and as I mentioned a minute ago, your your boss opens up a second second franchise and then another, and then all of a sudden it's a hundred. Yeah, mm. extreme example, but it's it's taking that sort of information in. It can give you an advantage over other people in the market who may not necessarily be looking for that that immediate, you know, factoid. Um, another book that I read later in my journey, still still a number of years ago, but not not directly at the beginning. It was a book called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Um, and it's basically about practice, practice, pr- practice, you know, 10,000 10, hours of practice and focused practice, you know, sort of helps you perfect uh, or, you know, perfect an art or a skill. Um, and that applies to a any area of life, right? So uh, there's different chapters in there devoted to, um, I think it was uh, maybe a Serbian or Croatian tennis team that um, you know pushed out a number of number one players, uh, number one world players uh, from, from this one club. And it was really interesting to learn that the way they actually start practicing in that club, it's not by you know hitting balls, it's by literally just swinging the racket with an invisible ball. So they would literally start with an invisible ball and just practice that swing. And then as they develop that skill, that's when they introduce the ball. Um, How does that apply to investing? I think as a young person trying to break into a a highly competitive market, as as I was, as as you did as well, against people who have been doing this for, for years and decades even, it can be difficult to sort of see how am I actually going to make it in this industry? You know, I, I, I really need to put in the work. And the lesson there for me was one, keep applying yourself just over and over and over again. Just keep on trying to perfect that art um, in other ways that it can be applied to investing as well. I think just reading earnings reports, you know, reading this, reading that, reading the next one, um, business briefs, building models, watching interviews, and then also conducting them. By just spending time doing these things, you can start to really perfect that skill, and you know, and it does become second nature. And you you find that you start just really thinking, you know, in a sort of business mind you, from that mindset. You know, you, someone might mention, uh, as I said, someone might men- mention from Woolworths, hey, I, you know, they they introduced this thing, and now it's so much easier for me to pack these bags. You know, I'm not getting as much wrist pain. It's it's great. You know. From that point of view, you can start thinking, oh, hang on, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes there. You know, is Woolworth something that I should be looking at? Um, is the company that Woolworth's, uh, that, that Woolworth's got that innovation from something that I should be looking at? You start thinking in, in terms of business and how you could potentially back that idea or that investment. Mm. Um, the third that I'll mention is called The Tipping Point uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell. And I think what... What really resonated with me from that book is that the human brain is designed to think linearly, so in a linear fashion. 
and it is really hard to think in terms of exponential growth. Um, so I'll give I'll give you an example from the book. If you were to fold a piece of paper fifty times, and this is this is impossible, mind you. I think the the maximum number you can fold a piece of paper is seven or seven or eight. But just hypothetically speaking, if you were to fold a piece of paper fifty times, how how tall do you reckon that stack would be? Are you actually asking me? Because I'm asking you. Yeah, I think I read your update when you wrote about this. And I okay, think- so all right, so don't bother then. Okay, <laughs> you ruined it. <laughs> no, it's. I look w- when you hear that. I think it, it's it's probably reasonable to think you know. Oh, look, I, I I would imagine it'd be you know as high as the ceiling. You know, the actual answer is it's it's about three quarters of the way to the sun. It, it it's millions and millions. I, I think it's about 128 billion miles or something like that, which is just out, astounding to to get your head around. You know, a piece of paper that's 0.1 millimeter thick folded 50 times. Mm. And and it gets you know three quarters of the way to the sun again impossible but hypothetically speaking you you don't think like that and you're not de- your brain isn't designed to think like that and the same applies to investing and in particular the 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 companies that I look at and the companies that uh, my team and the teams that I'm in predominantly look at are, are growth stocks and and companies that are capable of generating substantial growth over time. Um. And one of the areas that you can you can potentially get an edge on others in the market is just by, I guess, imagining how that company could continue to win over time that others in the market may not necessarily be doing. So uh, if you build a model and you estimate uh, 30% growth next year for this business, it's pretty difficult to imagine that company growing 30% in the year after and then 30% and then 30% and then 30%. Um, a company like Amazon has done that. Uh, they've done that, uh, I think, at 20 or 25% for, for a couple of decades now. But typically, most companies don't. When you find a company that you think could do that, while others in the market might be thinking, all right, they're going to grow at 30% and then 28% and then 26%, 24%, so on and so forth, you know, sort of that deceleration, you can start to think about, hey, is, this, is there potential for this company to actually st- to actually maintain or sustain that rate of growth or a higher rate of growth for a longer period of time that could potentially make this uh, this company more valuable than what the market is currently attributing to it. That was probably my biggest lesson from the tipping point, um, just to think about how you could potentially get that edge over other, other investors and others in the market. Hmm. How do you, when you forecast companies today, do you forecast... Using percentages, like is, is in like simple percentages for growth, or do you do it like? Is there other ways you think about forecasting? Generally speaking, yeah, um, I, I do generally go with percentages, um, and and it, look, it varies depending on the company and depending on the issue, right? But there are some instances where I think you can, you know, get a get a pretty fair idea or a, a, a reasonably good estimate, and that's all you're ever doing when you're forecasting, right? It's all just estimating, but you can make it a, an intelligent estimate, you know, one that's backed by facts or backed by trends. And one of the ways that you can do that is, I guess, by starting to put together numbers or figures that, you know, you might see that um, a company might be broken down into three or four different segments. You might see that this this segment is um, this segment's growing at one hundred and fifty percent 
and that's amazing growth. And you think that's going to be a real, you know, a real, um, uh, a really, a really good growth driver for this company in the future. So you can look at that, and then you can look at that in in contrast with other segments within that business. And you know that that another segment might be growing at ten percent, and another segment might be growing at twenty percent. And you can sort of look at how these they, these different segments make up the big business. You know, the 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 biggest part of that that business or the biz, biggest segment might be growing at ten percent. So you can sort of see, all right, well, that's going to create the biggest weight for this business in the next year. So growth might be twelve percent. But you know, I guess peeling back that layer and then sort of forecasting growth for that underlying segment, you know, one hundred and fifty percent, maybe. 140% the next year and 130% the next year, that will actually start to have a bigger impact on the underlying business and the, the overall group. So you can start to look at that and break that down and think, all right, well, overall, this group might grow at 12% this year and then 13% the next year and 14% and so on. Um, I think when it comes to, well, when, when it comes to forecasting, it, it does pay to have, you know, some leniency in mind that you're not going to be right any estimate that you make will be simply a, a star in the galaxy. You know, you could pick any any star in any galaxy. You've you've selected this one as your estimate. So it's not going to be right. It's not going to be spot on, but you can be in the general, general area. I think when it comes to these sort of businesses, you, you need to pay particular attention, I think, to, to what you think is reasonable in the next few in the next few years, maybe two or three years. And then you can start to, I guess, be a little bit more a little bit more lax for you know years three onwards. I for the companies that I estimate for, generally I'm going out out to ten years. Obviously, at that time, your estimates uh, are going to be you know they're going to be likely way off from what what is what is reality. But one of the reasons that I do go out so far with those companies is I also think that it's unreasonable to expect such a sharp drop drop off in growth so soon. Uh, and I, I guess to give, give you an example of that, let's say you're going for 30% growth this year, slowing down to 20% growth in five years' time. Mm. After five years, it would probably be unreasonable to expect that company to slow down to a terminal rate of growth of 4%. Mm. So the reason I go out to 10% is so that I can sort of slow that slow that growth down or decelerate it over a longer period of time. Um, I, I, I hope that answers your question. Um Generally, it is percentage-based. Generally, there is an element of deceleration in there. Uh, depending on the company, it will. I, I will generally forecast a, a varying rate of deceleration. I think, you know, what is probably standard standard is twenty uh, percent deceleration between fifteen and twenty percent deceleration per year. Um, I think that's reasonable for some companies. I think some other companies, you know, a much slower rate of, rate of deceleration is appropriate. Mm. All right, seeing that you got nerdy on this, um, I'll ask a follow-up. Um, so how do you select your discount rate then when you apply when you do your valuations? I'm not super strict on it. So what you would I mean the, the, the general rule that you would apply is the WAC, the weighted average cost of capital, and you would look at the cost of equity as well as the cost of debt. Um, so by taking on debt, a company, you know, a company can increase its risk by taking on debt. Um, in terms of its balance sheet position, but at the same time, if debt is cheaper than equity, which it which it is, then it can actually reduce the, the cost of capital. 
I think if you were if you were applying that to a mature sort of business, um, maybe like a Woolworths or a, or a Telstra, I think going by that whack approach would be reasonable. And I think others in the market would be doing the same. You know, those sort of companies would have, you know, dozens of, dozens of analysts following them. When it comes to a smaller growth company like the ones that I typically look at, I, I'm I'm not as liberal with my calculation. I'm I'm more generally applying. You know, I look. I want fifteen percent for this. I'm taking on a, a higher level of risk here. This company has balance sheet risk. It has cash flow risk. If I'm going to invest in this business, I want to make sure that there is a, a good margin of safety in the price that I'm paying to to make to make that uh, you know a, a, a profitable decision. So if I if I require fifteen percent for that return or seventeen percent, I think I've gone up to it uh, with some businesses. Then. Um, then yeah, I'll, I'll plug that into my model. And, and for those who are listening, a discount a discount rate is basically that a required rate of return. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way to think about it: required yep. rate of return. Um, okay, here's a question for you. Um, so, your portfolio manager of Motley Fool Pro, um, gone before you. <laughs> uh, we've we've seen Joe Mega. Who's now at mm-hmm. Lake House Capital? He's been on the show, friend of the show. It's fair to say, friend of ours too. Um, Matt Joss, who's now running Maven, mm-hmm. um, Anirban, who mm-hmm. is my co-host for the Investors Podcast now, and he's also in, still investing at Seven Investing. Um, this is a kind of a, let's play favorites question. Um, what have you What have you learned from any of these people? In, in your time working with them or alongside them or just being around them? I, I've been incredibly privileged to, to be around them um, pretty much from my early days at The Motley Fool. So when I uh, when I transitioned from freelance writer to, to writer analyst, uh, the position in 2016 or thereabouts, um, Joe pretty much became my mentor um, and I learned a lot from him. Um, it was unfortunate that I didn't really get well, I didn't get any time actually working with him on Pro. By the time I joined Pro, he had left, uh, and I and and it was Matt that was leading. Mm. What was really beneficial though is I, I see a lot of similarities between Matt and Joe, um, mm. and and I think that probably stands to reason because Matt was also serving as analyst under Joe when Joe was the portfolio manager of Pro. So I think he learned quite a bit from Joe, and you know he, he's he's obviously adapted his approach in the time since, as has Joe. Uh, but they they sort of followed the same. Uh, philosophy, so to speak. Mm. Um, so I do see a lot of similarities between them. I think the small cap focus was one of the big things for me. Um, so Joe, uh, Joe, which might surprise a lot of investors now, but he started off as a value investor and then really transitioned to become growth growth oriented uh, because he saw the the appeal of investing in. In businesses that you know would be tomorrow, it could be tomorrow's blue chip, so to speak. So not not backing those value plays that you know you sell it as soon as it hits your estimate of intrinsic value, but investing in businesses that have such sky high potential that you know, I guess in some senses the intrinsic value in a way becomes less important because the range of outcomes becomes so much broader. So the small cap focus is is one element. And the long-term focus as well, so not selling, not not selling your winners too soon, and also tra- uh, trimming trimming your weeds. Um, 
as a young investor, probably one of the one of the biggest mistakes that I made as an investor. I remember I was working uh, I was working at a, at a previous job, and I saw one day that a company that I owned went down twenty percent, just like that after an announcement. Likewise, another company that I owned went up by twenty percent on the same day, and I can't remember why they both moved in it moved in either direction. But at the time, I was thinking this is great. I'm going to sell the one that's just gone up and I'm going to buy the one that's just gone down and uh, buy more of the one that's just gone down. So I ended up with one position that was, you know, on, on the, on the downwards trend and, and it did continue that, 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 uh, that path for quite some time. It's actually rebounded a lot in the time since, but I did sell because the, the business was underperforming quite for quite Which some time. Which company was it? It was a company called Coden. Uh, oh, yeah. C C C D A or C D N, I think is the ticket. Yeah, they did gold mining detection back in the day. The yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's transitioned a bit since. Yeah. Cool. So that that was the company, and the company that I sold that went up was actually corporate travel management, um, which has obviously d- not done so well throughout this this uh, pandemic, but it has been a, a long term winner, and would have been a very long term winner for me had I held. Uh, so I think one of one of the lessons that I learned from these guys was that you know that that long term focus and that. I guess willingness to hold on to your your your, your ones the, the winners the ones that are actually winning for your portfolio and selling the ones that aren't performing well. Um, one of the other things that I, I really respect about Joe and Matt, both of them um, alike, is that their willingness to say no. Um, and I think that's a really important a really important attribute for an investor because, yeah, by saying no, you might miss out on something that's going to go up a few hundred percent. But successful investing is just about, it's as, it's as much about the companies that you don't invest in as it is about the companies that you do invest in. And I think if you, if you have too many, too many big losers in your portfolio, then you're going to struggle. Um, if you do have a big winner in your portfolio and it goes up 20, 20 times, then yeah, it's going to make up for, for a lot of those losers. But what that willingness to say no to leads to is a concentrated portfolio and it goes against what a lot of investors feel comfortable with, you know, having that diversification, you know, some investors will have 50, maybe even a hundred stocks in their portfolio. They're not willing to add to existing positions because they would prefer just, you know, diversify into something new. That's okay. But by doing that, you're pretty much committing yourself to, uh, basically to market returns because you become so diversified that your portfolio basically becomes the market. By running a concentrated portfolio, yes, you do have more company-specific risk. So you do need to stay on top of those companies more, but it's less market risk, like less beta risk almost. Like, you you know, you're not so concentrated on, you know, what the market's doing, but what these companies are doing. And by doing that, you can really focus your attention on the companies that you have the highest amount of conviction in. Yeah, you know, the companies that you've been following for a longer period of time. Also, by running a, a more concentrated portfolio, it does allow you more time to actually study those businesses and keep track. If you're if you've got a hundred uh, hundred positions in your portfolio, there's no way known that you're going to be able to keep track of them all. Mm. Whereas with 15, 20, yeah, it becomes far more possible, and you can actually start to almost build an expertise in those sort of businesses. But what about the efficient frontier? <laughs> Yeah, there's there's that there's that we won't get into that for, for today, but there is that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. Go on. I didn't mean to interrupt with some shenanigans. <laughs> I, I think um, I think what else 
as well, so two two other things that I took away from from Matt and Joe, and I've taken a lot a lot from them. Um, they've they've given a lot to my investing journey. But two other points: gaining exposure incrementally, so buying in slowly to a position. You don't need to jump in with a ten percent position right away, and that's what I was talking about a minute ago as well. With you know building conviction in a in a position over time by by managing a concentrated portfolio, you can you can build that conviction. So if you find an idea that you really like and you think this this has real potential, you don't need to go all in straight away. You can buy a one or two percent position, you know, sort of see how it goes. Maybe just have that as the you know sort of the the very the very low end of your portfolio for a little while while you do learn more about it. And then as you gain confidence, you can either say, sorry, as you gain as you gain more expertise in it, you can either say I don't want any more of this or I do. And then you can start to build that position over time. Um, they did that really well, and I, and I think they still do. The other thing as well that probably helped me to align myself with them is that, and, and I, I don't think either of them would have, uh, have an issue with me saying this. I think they've probably both said it on, on the podcast, but neither of have inherent, sorry, neither Matt or Joe have inherently come from a particularly privileged family. Uh, they both come from loving families, so you know, good good upbringings but not necessarily wealthy. Uh, Joe's dad, uh, I believe, runs a, uh, a retail store. Liquor, liquor store, yeah. Liquor, liquor store, yep, over in, over in the States, or he did. I, I don't think he does anymore, but he did. And then uh, Matt's parents as well. They, they weren't particularly well off uh, when, when he was a kid. Um, and, and, you know, he, he, he's got a good relationship with his, with his mum, but um, he didn't come from a, pri- a privileged background. So I, I also have a really good upbringing. I, I love my parents. Um, and, and we certainly weren't poor, but we, we also weren't, you know, incredibly privileged. And I think what that probably helped me to recognize is that there are a lot of people out there who, who want to invest to, to make, a, to build towards a better future for themselves, for their kids, for their grandkids, whoever. And I, I guess I recognize that, you know, Matt and Joe are both doing that. And I can do that as well by, by, I guess, using my research and using, uh, what I what I really enjoy doing, researching businesses to to help other people invest their money to to hopefully build towards a better future. Mm. Um, that's what I really took away from Matt and Joe. Anuban had a really positive impact on me as well, um, and and he's he's given me plenty of plenty of what uh, Matt and Joe have both given me as well. So I, I won't spend too long on this. But I worked with Anuban for a couple of years uh, after Matt left the Motley Fool. Um, Anuban became portfolio manager of Motley Fool Pro, and he he had a different approach. He he had more of a he he was very trust and and not to say that Matt and Joe weren't trusting, but Anuban was very trusting of myself and Kevin, who were both working uh, Kevin Gandia, who were both working on his service at the time. He he took not a hands off approach, but more of a hands off approach, in that he he had a high level of trust in both Kevin and myself to go out there, to do the research, to present him with good ideas and then say, we like this, we think it should be in the portfolio. So even as a portfolio manager, he, he did give quite a bit of autonomy to, to Kevin and myself to, to really go out there and you know build, these, uh, build the, these high conviction ideas. That I think was a real turning point for me as well in becoming portfolio manager. So you mentioned before, as uh, as a twenty nine year old, I'm uh, I'm turning thirty next year. Um, oh God, <laughs> you're already you're already you're already thirty. So I, I'm I'm in good company. But uh, 
I, I think, so, so, sorry, sorry to bring your age into this. <laughs> Decent company, we'll say. <laughs> Decent company, yeah. I think as a 29-year-old, yeah, it is, it is a young, it is, I am a younger uh, portfolio manager. And I think one of the reasons why I feel more confident in being in this position now is that over time, I've sort of built from, as I said, freelance to writer to free, uh, to uh to analyst and now to portfolio manager. Over that time, I've built trust. I, I think I've built trust in my employer with Bruce, with uh, Scott, our compliance uh, compliance officer, um, with director of research. I've also built trust with the member base. So they've gotten to know me. They've gotten to know the kind of companies that I invest in, that I like to look for, my style of investing. Um, I, w- I would say I'm I'm predominantly bottom up investing. You know. Uh, predominantly looking at businesses themselves at the fundamentals but there is a there is an element of top down you know i sort of know what i want to look for i'll i'll you know do some negative screens to screen out what i don't want and really hone in on these sort of companies that can sort of be an element of of top down and then you know bring bottom up into it afterwards um i think building that trust in the in the member base has really been a, a big thing for me but building trust in myself as well, as a as a younger individual, you know, five years ago, I, I openly acknowledged that I I was not ready to be a portfolio manager, um, and you know, I, the, the opportunity arose where I could potentially put my put my name in the in the in the ring to to potentially um, step into that position, but I I didn't want to, I didn't feel ready. So over time, I built that confidence in myself, and I, I and and I think Anna Barnes' approach, that hands off approach, and you know, having that level of trust in myself and Kevin really aided in my development in that way. Uh, so I, I'm forever grateful for Anubar, to Anuban for that. Um, he was also very willing to grow others and put himself second, which I think stands stands to what I what I was just saying. And also a big believer in David Gardner's rule breakers approach to investing. Uh, David Gardner was is one of the two brothers that uh, co-founded the Motley Fool uh, 25, 24, 25 years ago, I think. Um, might even be, actually it might even be 28 years ago now, I think, uh, 1993, I believe it was, um, David Gardner's rule breakers. That is, uh, it, it's had a lot of, I guess, impact on how I invest. You know, it's, it's not necessarily locking a company into its, uh, into its intrinsic value. It's really about looking about what the future holds for this business or for this industry, you know, and. I read a good quote the other day, and I can't remember exactly what it was or who, who wrote it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna uh, try and bluff this one. But it, it was something to the effect of we we can't understand things that for which there is for, we can't understand things for which language has not yet been written. Mm. And I can't remember exactly what context that was in, but I think it applies to this sort of investing as well. That there are a lot of companies today with technological advancements that are creating new products new investments that we just don't understand because because they're not a big part of our lives right now but i think in in the future they will be and i think as as investors and again this is i, I think uh, something that i've really taken from anban who who has also taken that from david gardner is that you you really need to have that second level thinking and and really think towards the future and, you know, try and apply it to that. Not not necessarily lock yourself into the rules of today, but the rules of what tomorrow could be. Um, so, yeah, th- th- all three of them have had a really positive influence on me and my investing journey. Um, and, yeah, I'm forever grateful for them. 
Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't even summarize that. So I'll just um, leave that out there for, 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 for listeners to kind of just go back and play again. Um, and I'm sure the three of them will be humbled by your remarks. Um, so, okay. So I'm going to tie two questions into one. Um, first is how do you spend your day now? And then um, I think the easiest way to kind of answer that question is maybe giving us some examples. So maybe like three of the better investments that you've made in your lifetime. Um, what have they been and uh, and why have, what have you learned from them? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start by saying, I guess, why I enjoy being an investor. Um, I enjoy reading. I, I, I read uh, widely. I'm, I'm actually undertaking, I'm a candidate in the CFA um, CFA course right now. So uh, that's taking up a lot of my time, so not not reading as many uh, as many nonfiction books as I would like, um, but I do intend on getting back into that. I enjoy reading, and I enjoy reading widely. So not necessarily um, focusing specifically on investing, but just reading about any any industry, anything that you know is potentially of interest, because I think all of that can sort of interconnect. Um, I also really enjoy piecing together information like a jigsaw puzzle of sorts. Uh, and, I, and I also enjoy thinking about the bigger picture and applying it to the world. So I think that's sort of where, um, you know, the David Gardner rule breakers approach sort of comes in. Um, I also like to learn about things that at the time might not necessarily seem overly important, but might give me an edge, you know, in the future in, in some way. And, and I am a competitive person. Um, maybe that edge is just knowing something that someone else doesn't in the conversation and being able to sort of, you know, throw it in. Um, and uh, to be honest, that's actually one of the ways that I, I wooed Lauren, who is now my wife. Uh, so back, back in the early days of our relationship, I remember Lauren within probably a month or two of going on, uh, of, of uh, becoming girlfriend and boyfriend at that time, she went on a family holiday and uh, I think she was going to Tangaluma Island Resort in, in Queensland. And she went away for a couple of weeks and I thought I need a way to sort of stay on top of this to keep, you know, to keep the embers burning, so to speak, <laughs> the, the flames hot. So what I do is send her some interesting facts that I came across from this British TV show called QI, uh, which was a show hosted by Stephen Fry at the time. Um, and I still, I still sort of enjoy these, these sort of interesting facts that have no bearing on life. But uh, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Did you know that Beyonce has released more perfumes than she has albums? I did not know. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm not a big fan of uh, Miss Knowles, but, but I thought that was interesting, and I, I'm sure uh, others who are aware of of Beyonce's work will find that interesting. Uh, also, the all strawberries today derive from five plants brought to uh, brought to France from Chile in the 1700s. I'm only going to throw those those two facts at you. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to bore this or, or take this on too much of a tangent, but those are just a couple of the examples of uh, the things that I might. Send Lauren to, to to yeah keep keep those embers burning and yeah how could she resist how could she resist right yeah well, that's it I actually heard something similar about the strawberries but this one with cows apparently there's a rumor that all the American um, I think it's I think it's dairy cows it could be um, other cows for beef um, actually trace back to two bulls or something like that wow. so yeah it's fascinating there's a sterile. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sterile. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, someone that's listening to this actually knows the answer and can just at us on Twitter. Uh, TMF Numi is your Twitter handle. Um, okay, cool. So 
that's fascinating. How about then the second part of the question, which is lessons learned from some of those Yeah, companies. sorry, I took us on a complete tangent there, so I do apologize. <laughs> I love strawberries. It makes sense. <laughs> uh, so, all right, first, first, the first company, I, I think, um, one, it was one of my earlier ones at Pro uh, was Appen. And Matt was also very involved in this one, so I, I don't take uh, I don't take all the credit here. But Appen was a company that we recommended to our Motley Fool Pro service in uh, December 2016. It's still a holding, uh, although we have been trimming that position since I think February 2019 or thereabouts. Um, at the time of the recommendation, it was two dollars fifty five, I believe. Uh, basically, what Appen does is, uh, and I'm a shareholder in this company too, by the way. It provides training data predominantly to uh, the global tech companies, uh, companies like um, Google or Alphabet, um, Facebook, Amazon, I think is a customer as well, uh, vehicle manufacturers. And basically this training data is used to help, it's fed into those companies' algorithms to to enhance their relevance is is a big thing. So uh, search engine relevance, Um, a good example here would be uh, June 2019, if you'd searched Corona, it'd come up with a beer, you know, or uh, an alcohol, al- alcoholic beverage. Whereas, you know, now you search Corona and it's coming up with the number of coronavirus cases near you today. That's mm. the kind of uh, that that's the kind of relevance work that Appen is doing with those sort of companies, and it's doing that across e-commerce to help enhance search results, also um, uh, social media sort of platforms. At the time, one of the big red flags for us was that it had such high customer concentration. And I, I don't know, I don't remember the exact figure, but it was probably somewhere around 82 or 83% uh, customer concentration within the top five customers. Mm. That means that if any of those customers decide to drop off, that's a huge chunk of revenue that's now gone from Appen. By digging a bit deeper, what we found was that those, yes, it had a high level of customer concentration, but within those customers, it actually had multiple, potentially thousands of individual projects that it was working on. So it wasn't necessarily the, you know, it wasn't necessarily going to be Facebook's decision that, okay, we're not going to use Appen anymore. It might be an individual project within Facebook that said, okay, we're not going to use Appen anymore. Um, That, I mean, I guess Facebook or any of those big sort of tech companies can flick the switch when they want to. So there, there is still that risk. But in our eyes, that risk was somewhat mitigated. Um, So I think, in that, in that sense, yes, the lesson was it had a very high level of custom concentration, but by digging deeper, we were actually able to find an edge where we found an area that probably wasn't quite as understood by the market as what we felt we had an understanding of. Um, we also continued to buy it along the way after it made a number of transformative acquisitions uh, that we thought were very value enhancing. Um, so we built our position and, as I said, started trimming due to position sizing as well as uh at at the beginning of COVID, we sold because we felt that we we sold some i should say because we felt that some of its customers would likely be hit by a lower advertising revenue um company is is struggling a little bit at the minute some of those customers still haven't come back as much as they'd like our position has become uh far less important to the overall scheme of the portfolio i think it's about two or three percent at the minute so it's not not huge, you know, hugely bearing on the direction of the portfolio, but it's still one we hold. Um, another company that uh, we invested in earlier as well at Pro, and I'm also a shareholder in this one, is WiseTech Global. Uh, I bought this one at four dollars sixty nine. Personally, I think it's up about thirty one or thirty two dollars at the minute. 
And this company provides a platform for logistics service providers around the world. Its platform is known as CargoWise One. And basically the premise is that customs is extremely complex. So if I'm sending, if you're ordering something from America, that item, uh, you know, that, that item might have a number of different components that come from various places in the world, which all rely on customs to get to the warehouse or the, uh, to the manufacturer, the manufacturer, manufacturer then has to send that, you know, from maybe into a, into a truck that then gets sent through, um, to a ship, which then gets sent on a plane, so on and so forth. There are so many different stages of this journey along the customs line that that make it a very complex process. And what WiseTech Global does is provides a platform that digitalizes that. It, it removes that paper paper trail and digitalizes it, um, and, and therefore uh, significantly simplifies that process. Um, actually, for, for people who do want to listen, I, I, there was a really interesting podcast by Patrick O'Shaughnessy on, a, I think it was Invest Like the Best. He interviewed a guy named Ryan Peterson, who was the founder of Flexport, uh, which is a technology platform for global trade. Hmm. Um, I think it was about an hour or an hour and a half podcast. That was a really interesting listen and I think gave a, a lot of insight to just how complex this industry is. Um, so I don't know, maybe you can link that. Yeah, sure. Link that in the in the notes. But um I think as well, one of, the, one of the things that probably I felt we had a better understanding of than what other, some others in the market might, might not have such an understanding of is that acquisition side of things. This was a very acquisitive business and it has uh, slowed down in, in, over the past 12 months or so. But on face value, it didn't really seem like those acquisitions were adding a lot of value. Because at times the the revenue generation from those companies was actually declining mm. afterwards, yeah. You know, after after uh, acquiring these businesses, and and that's generally not what you want to see in an acquisition. But stepping back, what the company was actually doing, it was actually acquiring businesses that it would otherwise have to invest uh, research and development dollars in to acquire. Uh, sorry, to 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 build, and by acquiring it, it was just a much quicker and smoother process than by building it itself. Um, it was changing the business models of those acquisitions, and therefore, you know, it sort of had to take a, a short-term hit to make a big-term, big, uh, a long-term leap, rather. So, I think that was that was uh, one one fact that uh, probably appealed to me with that business. I, I think probably the the last or one of the last uh, important messages or takeaways from that investment is the importance of net retention. This company has continuously. Uh, generated more revenue from its existing customer base over the years, and and it's it's cons- it's consistently providing this uh, this chart in its in its updates and its presentations that shows the different user cohorts. You know, from I think FY fourteen or might, might even be earlier than that onwards, just how each of these cohorts is spending more and more and more each year, and I think that's really valuable for for any business because obviously to to increase the usage of an existing customer is cheaper and easier than by going out and acquiring entirely new customers. Um, so I think that that as well is something that I've applied to, that, that lesson is something that I've applied to a lot of different uh, investments along the way as well. Hmm. And so that's, so we've got Appen, we've got mm-hmm. WiseTech, mm-hmm. um, both businesses that I know pretty well, you know mm-hmm. pretty, pretty well. Um, do you have a third company for us? I'll throw in a third, and this is actually a company on uh, the NASDAQ. I think it's the NASDAQ. It might be NYSE. Maybe you can check this, but uh, Twilio. Yep. And Twilio is basically building 
the platform that revolutionizes the way that we communicate. So the way to think about this is, um, let's say you've got uh, any, virtually any app on your phone now. There's some, there's some form of communication, whether that be a text message or a WhatsApp message or some sort of phone communication. Um, you know, airlines will send you a text message saying your, your plane has been delayed, this and that. So companies are enhancing the way that they're communicating with their, with their customers, with any other stakeholder as well. So communications is coming a long way and it's really advancing. The problem is, or the problem that uh, the founders, including Jeff Lawson, who is now the CEO, uh, or still the CEO, what he found was that entrepreneurs, as they developed these apps or these communications abilities within these apps, was that they were constantly having to reinvent the wheel. They would, every time they coded these these apps or these, you know, uh, these, these codes, they would constantly have to code a new way to apply messaging. So basically what Twilio does is instead it acts as like a platform from and it provides an API from which um, entrepreneurs can literally just copy a code into their apps and it will use Twilio's underlying technology to, to do it. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all and developers can obviously adapt it to whatever they need their their uh, individual um, products to do. There, there's, I mean, even things like smart bins. Uh, when a when a bin becomes too um, too hot or gets to a certain you know fill line, you know it can communicate with the garbage truck to say, "Hey, come and collect this," and you know it will optimize its route. So there are a lot of different ways that this can be applied. Hmm. Um, I think what what this uh, and it's it's a more um, I guess complex business than that. You know they've also got the, the networks in which they they run. But the lesson I guess from that that I took away was the power of platforms and. You know, just by centering yourself in that that position and becoming the platform from which others can build is a really, really valuable position to be in. Um, and yeah, there, there's others that that are that are applying that as well. Yeah, dude, I use uh, Twilio, but I use Twilio as an extension of its um, its its email channel. So mm. omni-channel communication is basically Twilio, and mm-hmm. one of those channels that it's known for is like SMS and text and whatever, but also. Mm-hmm. They acquired SendGrid. Mm. So SendGrid is like the world's, I think it's like the world's biggest email server for developers. Mm. And so basically when we send emails, we send different types of emails. And Mm. like if you get, say, for example, you get like a password reset email from a Rask server, it actually comes via Twilio. And so our website pings Twilio, which then sends it across. And if we didn't have Twilio slash SendGrid, it's just so much more complicated. Not only that, your server, which is running other stuff like serving web pages or processing payments or whatever, um, it'll just be smashed by um, constantly sending emails to users if you've got thousands and thousands of users, right? So that's how we use Twilio. Um, and it's more like the send grid side of the business. But that's fascinating. Yeah, right. So you've got three really interesting lessons learned from three interesting companies. So there's more than one, there's more than one lesson from each. But um I think you know we can take a lot from them, like app and basically getting that variant perception. Um, wise tech, you got that through understanding the buy versus build trade-off and also kind of maximizing efficiency and simplifying a very complex thing and having that high net retention rate as a result. Um, the other thing obviously with Twilio is the importance of platforms, right? Like, so Hmm. I think there's many examples of this, but the Australian example would be zero. I say Australian, we both know it's Kiwi. 
Um, we'll claim it. We'll claim it. If it's good, we'll claim it. Um, so, uh, yeah, like zero allows you as a developer to integrate, right? So um, it's very hard for businesses to reach that point. But once they get to the tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell, you will see that they kind of take off um, in terms of more and more developers and it creates this kind of vicious network effect and this flywheel that kind of just spins and crazy spins out crazy cash flow over time. Um, just conscious of time here, mate. Uh, we have a lot of questions to ask you. Um, I think I'm going to have to get you back for another chat. Um, but maybe so I've got a few here that I wanted to ask you. Maybe in the interest of time, uh, go for it. What were you going to say? I was going to say uh, you. What you meant? You mentioned uh, my kids before. I've got. Um, I've got two, so twi- twin boys. They're nearly seven months old, and also a nearly three-year-old daughter. Three under um, three. Yeah, I know. I know you were, you were. I know it's a bit. It's a busy household. I know you were keen to ask me. I guess about how. Yeah. Uh, I, I think about investing for them. Yeah, let's do that one. So yeah, so how do you invest for kids, your kids, and is that different to how you invest for yourself? So, look, I, I'm being being perfectly honest, I haven't invested in businesses for them yet, or in a in a portfolio specifically. Um, part of that has been, I guess, just trying to think about the most efficient way to do that. You know, tax wise, um, I'm not a tax I'm not a tax accountant, but um, basically, if if I was to hold shares in my own name for my children, if I sell them, then uh, obviously I'm taxed heavily, and then if I you know if I if I invest in their name then I think it's taxed at the, the maximum rate. So it, it's it's not the most efficient way. Um, there are other ways that we have thought about doing it, uh, but just haven't got around to doing that part yet. However, there are there are things that I really, there are ideas that I really like about how I intend on helping my kids to get investing in the future. Um, and as I said, my, my kids are really young at the minute. So they're th- three under three, uh, two of them, you know, spend more time, you know, pooing their pants and sleeping than anything else. Then, uh, and, and Ava is just not yet at that point where she can comprehend this sort of thing. But I, I think there are still things that you can start to work on. Um, and one of the things that I'm keen to, to teach Ava, Ava is my daughter's name. One of, the, one of the things that I'm keen to teach her is about delayed gratification. And I think that's a really important element of investing itself. Uh, there was a, a really interesting case from quite a, a few years ago uh, where this professor would put a marshmallow in front of all these children in a classroom and say, you can eat it or if you leave it for 15 minutes and I come back and it's still in front of you, I'll give you another one. So either eat one now or two later. And that's really what investing is, right? And what that study found is that kids who have or, or are taught delayed gratification they do that. They have tended tended to perform better academically. They also have tended to earn more money in their lifetime. They live happier and healthier lives, and they're also less prone to uh, diseases like uh, obesity and also drug use. Hmm. I think um, there are there are ways that, and, and I, I will say this is very much a work in progress. If I put a marshmallow in front of Ava right now, she will eat it. <laughs> so there's no waiting. So it is very much a work in progress. But I think uh, what I want to sort of go down the path of is is helping her to develop that skill and that mindset. So one of the ways that I think she can do that is by reframing it. So um, rather, the, one of the examples that the the that the uh, the person who did that study provided was, 
you know, rather than thinking about it as a marshmallow in front of you, think about it as a, fluff, a fluffy cloud. You know, you can reframe it. 15 minutes goes by. Now you can think about it as a marshmallow. You can also distract yourself. And I think a good way that, uh, sorry, a, a lot of investors, I think, get distracted by the market noise, you know, mm. uh, and also just that constant access to um, to stock movements, to what the, what you know, this stock is doing today or that stock is doing yesterday. I think, just distracting yourself and getting away from it. You know, the less often you check your portfolio's daily movements, the better off you will be in the long run, you know, and the happier life you're going to lead because you're not feeling so stressed out all the time. So I think distracting yourself, getting out for a walk or just, you know, finding something else to do other than focusing on that. Uh, and likewise, focusing on that marshmallow, find something else that you can distract yourself with. I think the other, the other lesson from that as well is that human beings thrive not only from considering what the future holds, but also planning for it. And I think we probably saw that with the pandemic. You know, uh, I, I struggled to get paper, toilet paper in my household for, for quite a while, as I know a lot of other people did. But you stocked so up. That, I remember your office was full I, I, of toilet paper. You were I, one I of did, those. I did, stock, I did stock up a little bit, but then when I tried to stock up more because I thought that- <laughs> It was heaps. <laughs> oh, here we go. You took here it all. Here we go. The local Woolworths was empty because of you. <laughs> Ma- maximum maximum two two cartons at any time, mate. But I think that that's what we're really trying to do as investors. We're trying to plan for the future. So we're sacrificing now. We're 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 sacrificing that ability to spend now to save for later. And you know, it's and that that how that relates to this test. This study was one marshmallow now or two later. I think by teaching her these sort of things early, she can sort of get into that mindset earlier. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying Ava because she's sort of approaching that stage, but uh, my, my twin boys too. I think um, also <laughs> teaching them in, in ways that they'll understand. Uh, Ava asked me recently why mummy and daddy work. And we told her it's because we have to buy her toast. <laughs> That's the only way that she's going to understand because we have to buy your toast. So sort of teaching them in ways that they will understand at their level at that time. Um, the other, the other, Excuse me. The other, the other idea I've actually taken from Anuban, and I, I don't, uh, I don't think he'll have an issue with me sharing this, but I really like this idea, and I think it has a lot of merit to it. So Anuban's idea was to basically present his, his kid with four ideas. So it's it's ideas that he himself has researched, he likes. Uh, so that might be a you know, let's say a Disney, a game company, a supermarket, and something else. He he likes these businesses, and he's going to present her with these ideas. It might be a one one or two paragraph um, expl- explanation for each of those. And he will put that decision to his kid and say, all right, which of these do you want to invest in? Now it's guided because he's done the, he's done the groundwork and he's happy for her to invest in any of those businesses. But by the same token, she's actually the one making the decision and she's the one thinking that through. Now, it might be something that she knows about, you know, maybe it's a, a Roblox if, if she plays Roblox on, on her mobile phone or something like that. Um, so she might make that decision based on that. Or it might be because, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe I, I direct her in, you know, all right, think about this. You know, getting her to actually explain to me, why are you investing in this business? Why are you making that decision? I think that's a really good lesson with a, with a, a lot of merit to it to actually help them get into that investing mindset. Hmm. There's a lot there. Um, I'll give you a hot tip. You can um, just own shares or ETFs at a low turnover so you don't sell them or, or whatever. Hold them in your name, but you can actually 
do a bit of legal letter work, paperwork, and um, basically say that you're holding them as a beneficial interest for your minor. Um, but the key mm-hmm. is just make sure that their income doesn't go over, say, $500 a year um, because then that's when they'll get taxed more for unearned income. Mm-hmm. And then when they hit 18, the transfer of interest is pretty simple. You just transfer it into their name so you shouldn't need to pay the capital gains tax. I'm not an accountant. Speak to your accountant. General advice only. General advice only. There's the disclaimer, yeah. RG146. We've come full circle. Um, now, i tell you another one that's a really interesting one with um, Anirban. Um, I might ask him about that. Is um, when you go to the store, right, and explaining like what's your favorite and did you know that you can own part of this? Or that's probably mm, a little mm. bit further on from where Ava is at three, but um, you know, as they get older, maybe in the teenage years, that's probably something that you can do as well. Um, I really like that idea of giving them a choice. It's one thing that we've said for people to do as well over the years is basically you just write like a small little summary and make it companies that they know. There has to be companies that they know because that's the essence. That's to your point at the beginning about cutting through the noise. Like it's not stock symbols. It is businesses. So um, how do you do that? Well, you give them something that they know and then they can associate with that. That's kind and of cool. and exp- and also explain it to them as though they're a five year old because they are a five year old. You know, yeah. you sort of got to explain it in simple terms that they will understand. No, nah, you just say, "Hey, you're trying to get as close to the efficient frontier as you can." <laughs> and what's the beta of the stock? Oh, that matters because no one cares. Um, yeah, so all that stuff like that's super important, right? Um, and I feel like she's in good hands with you, with you and Lauren there. Um, I feel like we've got time for maybe for me to ask. Well, I've got two more questions I have to ask. Um, but um, so maybe a quick one is, um, I know you have some experience with small business. Um, how do you think running a small business compares to investing in bigger businesses? Like, is, Have you drawn any parallels with that over time? Yeah, I think um, it's it's really it's really important. My, my wife runs her own business uh, and I, I am uh, aiding in that. Uh, and and I'll be perfectly upfront. She has done the the bulk of the groundwork. I've sort of been there to help strategize, um, help with some of the financials, but um, she has been very much so the uh, the architect of it all. So full credit to her. But that has been my experience as well, and the, the experience that I've gained from that. Yeah, it has helped me with with investing too. And I think probably some of the bigger lessons to to take away from there is one. Try and remain lean. Don't don't overextend yourself. Um, and I think I think that's a really important thing, particularly for for people who are starting up, and also people who are looking at small cap stocks in particular, mm. because cash is king, right? We 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 know that saying, cash is king. Without cash, how can a business function? How can it pay its staff? How can it, um, you know, buy buy equipment or buy assets? How can it invest for the future? So that's been one of the key takeaways here for for me with with small business, and I'm I'm conscious of time as well, so I'm going to keep this short. I think as well the the other lesson too is the importance of taking on good staff. So building a good support network and a good team, you know, making sure that you've got the right people on the bus. As a small business, and again applying this to uh, uh, to I guess small cap investing. If you get bogged down with poor team members, then you're going to have your hands full. You're going to be putting out fires here and there, which you really don't want. You know, you you want momentum beyond to be on your side, and you want it all going that way. You don't want things holding you back. Uh, 
we we did we both learned some lessons, I guess, uh, in a business in a small business sense in the earlier days, and I think that's really something that we've improved on. Lauren's excellent at at interviewing now, um, and you know she she she's got a pretty fair idea of what she's looking for, and, and also what she thinks you know the person that she's interviewing is looking for, you know, mm. to try and get that right fit. And I think that's really important uh, and, a, and a good lesson for, for small cap investing too. Yeah, totally. Um, if you think about it, if there's a business of three people, that's 30% of the business is one person. Um, mm. So you got to make sure you have the right three people. Um, obviously, and as it grows, you be- each person becomes a, a smaller cog in a bigger wheel. But um, at the same time, at the very top is where the decisions are made. So there's obviously, it kind of focuses in on, on certain people. So you want the right people. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I feel like that's maybe something we can follow up on next time as well. Um, okay, so I've got one more question. Um, actually, so people want to find out about Motley Fool Pro and what you're doing. I don't think they can join Motley Fool Pro directly, can they? Or Not can directly. Uh, so we, we do reopen it uh, sporadically. I don't know when the next reopen is, uh, but obviously there are other services that they can join. Um, Share Advisor is one, Dividend Investor. Uh, Extreme Opportunities as well is a, a really good one. That's that's run by Kevin Gandia. He's our so he's the person that I, I used to uh, be a research analyst alongside on Pro. Uh, he's still working on Pro as a as an analyst. He is also the head of uh, of Extreme Opportunities and also our director of research. Um, really respectable guy. Really good investor. Uh, I, I really, I really like the extreme opportunity service and, um, that one's, that one's always open. So. Yep. Cool. That's full.com.au F O L.com.au. Um, I'll provide a link in the show notes as always. Uh, mate, one more question. Um, last one, uh, is if you could go back to your younger self, maybe it's 10 years ago when you started, maybe it's earlier, maybe it wasn't even that long ago. Maybe it was when you were three. What is the advice that you would have given to yourself, whether it's business, life, investing, money? What would you What would you say? Uh, one thing I'll say: my my parents were really good. So as I said, we, we didn't come from a, an incredibly privileged position, but you know it was a it was a, a comfortable upbringing. One of the things that my parents were really good at is, I guess, teaching us to save and uh, mm. how to respect money and. Um, I wish I had have paid more attention to that at the time. I, I distinctly remember them, you know, at, at the time saying things like, you know, do you really need this? You know, and I might spend a hundred dollars on that and get a week of enjoyment out of it. And then, you know, it's in the cupboard and, and locked away. A hundred dollars doesn't sound like much. And, you know, to, to, to some people it isn't, but as a young kid, it really is. And it's also that lesson, just that, that mentality of actually saving and putting it towards something in the future. So, as a lesson to a younger me, I think teaching myself to be more respectful of that and to, to really take advantage of that 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 earlier saving, um, I think mm-hmm. that could have you know put put me in a better position to potentially get a better car. Initially, I I had a number of bombs that uh, <laughs> that cost me a lot of money in my earlier years. Had I been able to afford a, a slightly better car, I think that would have saved me incrementally down the down the track as well. Um, I think the other the other thing as well is. I was I was hard on myself coming out of year twelve um, in my mm. in my earlier adult years, um, as I know a lot of younger people are. I think you you come out you you know you, you sort of know what you're doing in school, and then you come out and you don't know what you want to do. You know, you sort of feel lost, and 
and I was hard on myself. As I said, I, I, you know, I, I was, I was down on it. I was, um, you know, really thinking what, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I don't know what I want to do now. Uh, com- completely directionless. Things are, things have worked out well to, you know, I'm, I'm where I want to be, but I wish I wasn't so hard on myself. And I wish I had of, I guess, ta- just taken, taken life as it came a bit more. Yep. Yeah. Cool. I agree. You were hard on yourself, but um, hmm. yeah, it's hard to know how. And, much and I think I think a lot of I think a lot of young kids are, and I think a lot of them shouldn't be. I think you got to learn to fail, right? Like, yeah, you're. you're I mean, this is a sample size of two. Um, Indo Mines was obviously a success, but um, <laughs> Hot Rock Limited, geothermal energy. If we come full circle, there um, wasn't a success, and you had to fail to find out what did work. You had to experience some success, as in investing. It's as in life, right? Like you studied quite a few different things before you found mm-hmm. your calling. I went to five different undergrad unis. I was going to say, you, you've taken just about every course that Australia has to offer. So, <laughs> Well, I've still got a, I've got a few um, expensive pieces of paper that hang on the wall nowadays. But um, <laughs> let's, uh, I, so I studied social science, engineering, science, um, engineering again, did civil um, did technology, did economics. I mean, multidisciplinary learning, science, of course. Basically, an 18 year old Charlie Munger. That's <laughs> <laughs> like yourself healthcare, accounting, like maths. Like, man, we just. Well, look, you, you, don't, you, don't die, you don't die wondering, right? You, that, you experience something, you realize that it doesn't work for you, and you move on to something that does. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of the times, particularly for younger people, um, there's so much focus. Get a really good high school score. Get a really get into a good uni. Do this job because you'll earn a lot of money. Those types of things, very in my experience, very rarely result in a really happy person and someone who thrives in their their occupation, which consumes the majority of their life. So, mm. um, you know, we're not telling everyone to do you know a, a uni dropout and go and start Facebook, but um, you know, it's it's just I think that's kind of the experience that I've got from you. Um, cool, mate. This is heaps of fun. Um, did you, when you asked to come on the, the podcast, um, he had to ask, by the way, I was never going to let him on. <laughs> did you, did you think that, um, yeah, right. did you think it would be this much fun? No, it's been, it's been really good. I, <laughs> to, to be clear, that, that, that is not how this, how this <laughs> happened. But, <laughs> but no, it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's, uh, I, I think in particular for younger investors who are trying to, break in and, and and also just for people who are just tr- you know trying to find i guess an entry point I, I think it's really important to to realize that everyone comes from a starting point um no one no one is an expert even the so-called experts you know where no one is an expert you you do continue to learn as you go and you got to start somewhere so it's never too too late to start um yeah now's a great time cool mate love the advice thanks for taking some time to join me thank you For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. 
If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.